You know, when we think about inspiring stories from the Bible, we often think about specific people's lives. The lives of people like Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Ruth, Esther, David, Peter, Paul, among many others. Seldom do we consider stories about non-living things. Perhaps one of the most unique stories of the Bible, therefore, involves the transport of something non-living. A pile of objects weighing roughly 20 pounds that had been protected for hundreds of years to be taken to a special place as part of a promise. At first glance, these objects may seem inconsequential and only referred to in passing, but after examining where and how they are mentioned in Scripture, starting in the book of Genesis, and concluding nearly 2,000 years later in the book of Hebrews, the symbolic importance surrounding them starts to unfold. These non-living objects take on a life of their own, and they extend one man's story far beyond the grave. The pile of objects weighing roughly 20 pounds are a set of dead man's bones. Today I plan to share with you the story of Joseph's bones. We will consider the role they played in the history of the Israelites in their exodus out of Egypt. We will also consider how these bones can provide a source of inspiration and encouragement for all of God's people, teaching us valuable lessons on our journey to God's kingdom. You see, bones are foundational. They provide structure, strength, protection. They guard your heart and mind and enable you to stand tall against the weight of the world's gravity. They're also the source of your blood supply and critical to your immune system. It just so happens that bones are the one physical thing about you that is preserved long after you die. And therefore, they offer a unique symbol of hope for the future. The story of Joseph's bones is thus not about just any odd, non-living thing. It is a story of hope, commitment, family, forgiveness, salvation, and undying faith in the great eternal God. To get started, let's look at the first place in the Bible where, where Joseph's bones are mentioned. Genesis 50, verse 20 through 26. Genesis 50, verse 24 through 26. Now, at the very end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is 110 years old. He's lived in Egypt for the past 93 years, since the age of 17, and he knows he doesn't have much more time to live. So he gathers his brethren around him, and he has some very important message and words to share with them. He foretells events described in the book of Exodus, and he wants his family to make him a promise concerning his and their future. Let's read now Genesis 50 verses 24 through 26. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, also called Israel. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to visit Cairo, Egypt. This is, of course, pre-COVID. If you've ever been to Egypt, it's a hard place to forget. The terrain is often bleak and desert-like with hot, sun-scorched sands. 
But around the Nile River, rich vegetation flourishes, creating a sort of oasis in the desert. Fruit trees, majestic palms, and lush green gardens explain how some of the earliest civilizations made their home here, and how Egypt became a powerful nation that has lasted for millennia. Now, over the weekend while I was there, I had the opportunity to visit several pyramids and visit the Great Sphinx of Giza. See if that'll turn on. Yeah, there it is. Now, I've since learned that the Egyptians sometimes built these statues with the head of a pharaoh and the body of a lion called a sphinx to guard important locations such as tombs and temples. The great sphinx of Giza was carved out of a huge outcrop of limestone, and behind it are several pyramids. Now, the sphinx stands over 60 feet tall, and it evokes a powerful image. Extremely impressive, it is the largest freestanding sculpture to survive since ancient times. But you know, as impressive as the Sphinx is, it hardly compares to one of the structures for which it stands guard. The Great Pyramid of Giza is the largest ancient pyramid in the world. Until the first millennia AD, it stood as the world's tallest man-made structure for nearly 3,000 years. Now, not only did I have the opportunity to see this Great Pyramid up close, I was also fortunate enough to climb inside and follow a narrow passageway into its inner sanctum. The pyramid is massive, an incredible feat of engineering, a testament to the pharaoh's wealth, his power, and his ability to procure a large workforce. I was awed by this tomb built for one man's death. But you know, my amazement didn't stop there. After visiting the Sphinx and the Pyramids of Giza, I caught back up with my driver and asked him to take me to the Egyptian National Museum in the heart of Cairo. Now, the Egyptian museum is literally stuffed with ancient artifacts. And when I say stuffed, I'm talking about priceless relics, most of them from grave sites sitting in the hallways. It's hard to fathom such a large building can be filled with burial relics, and yet most of that is what is comprised in that museum. Now, naturally, this building preserving Egypt's past is surrounded by gates and carefully guarded. But inside the museum was a special room that had another entire layer of security around it. Within this inner layer of security was King Tut's death mask. Now, the exquisite beauty of King Tut's mask, it's really hard to describe. To see it in pictures, it looks impressive. But you know what struck me most about it is how much more impressive it was to see up close in person. Even behind the glass, it had this amazing quality to it. The gold, the intricate artwork, I didn't expect to be so impressed, but it left me truly astounded. You know, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but after seeing King Tut's mask up close and in person, I can assure you there are some things, even a picture, can't capture. My point is this. The leaders of Egypt clearly put enormous energy into preparing for their deaths. In fact, their grave sites suggest they spent more time preparing for death than for life. Thousands of workers spent decades building world-renowned tombs. 
Fortunes were consumed, crafting priceless golden coffins. And in the midst of all this was Joseph. Due to his position, it is clear that Joseph could have had a priceless coffin and a huge pyramid in Egypt if he wanted. He could have had all that. And yet, when preparing for his death, what did Joseph, the second most powerful man in Egypt, ask for? Well, here in Genesis 50, he asked to be carried out of Egypt. Joseph wasn't enamored by the magnificent tombs, the Egyptian treasures, golden coffins. Those things weren't important to him. What Joseph was focused on was going to the land that God had promised and reminding his brethren that it was their promise too. You know, something that makes Joseph's request especially remarkable is that this land, which was so dear to his heart, the land of Canaan, he hardly knew. Remember, Joseph had been sold into slavery and carried into Egypt at the age of 17. He died in Egypt at the age of 110, which meant that Joseph spent 93 years of his life in Egypt. He married his wife there, raised a family there, had grandchildren and even great-grandchildren there. And yet, Joseph was ever mindful that Egypt was not his home. Let's have some fun and do some math. Now, I know that sounds like an oxymoron to many of you, but stick with me for a moment. If we quickly do the math, 93 years divided by 110 is roughly 85%, which means that Joseph spent roughly 85% of his life in Egypt. Now, did, you, did you know, it just so happens that 6 divided by 7 is also right around 85%. If we consider we spend six days a week living in Egypt and escape once a week on the Sabbath, it means that roughly 85% of our present lives, at least our lives since being called, are lived in Egypt. I propose this fact begs an important question. Are you like Joseph and always mindful that Egypt is not your home? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Now, as you know, Hebrews chapter 11 provides a sort of memorial for God's heroes of faith. It talks about those who died in faith, not having received the promises, but had seen them afar off. They were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. It also describes how those who put their faith in God declare plainly that they seek a homeland, a promised land that is a heavenly country whose builder and maker is God. Of course, in this chapter of Hebrews, the deeds of many of God's greatest servants are recorded. By faith, Noah, being warned by God of things not yet seen, moved with fear and prepared an ark to save the human race. By faith, Abraham obeyed the instruction to leave his home and dwell in tents in a land of promise. By faith, Sarah conceived a son when she was far past a reproductive age. And when we finally come to Joseph, what does the author of Hebrews highlight as an illustration of faith in Joseph's life? Well, the author clearly sees faith living 
in Joseph's bones. Notice Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. The instructions Joseph gave concerning his bones were a testament of his trust and confidence in God. Joseph knew that God had promised him his grandfather Abraham, his, father, his grandfather Isaac, and his father Jacob that he would give them the land of Canaan. And so Joseph knows that the children of Israel will one day depart for that land. It's a wonderful promise that Joseph is assured of. So he utilizes his bones as a witness of faith for his family. And I suppose as a witness of faith for you and I here today. Joseph wants his family to remember what God did for him, the inheritance he promised their ancestors, and that there's always hope when one puts their trust in God to look beyond Egypt and set their goal on the promised land. In fact, if we continue reading more from the book of Hebrews, we see that Joseph's faith leads directly to another man achieving a great deliverance on behalf of God. Notice right after Joseph in Hebrews 11, here, starting in verse 24, it talks about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Like Joseph, Moses wasn't enamored by the magnificent pyramids, the golden coffins, the Egyptian treasures, and all their abundance. He looked to Egypt and was committed to the promises of God. Of course, it makes you wonder, as we read the accounts of Joseph and Moses back to back here in the book of Hebrews, how many times did Moses pass by Joseph's coffin and consider the Israelites' vow to carry Joseph's bones out of Egypt? Did, Moses, did Joseph's bone remind um, Moses to not get too comfortable there in Egypt? That this is not your home, Moses. You're only passing through. God is going to bring you out of this land and lead you and your family to a better country. How many times did Moses hear Joseph's story? The story of a 17-year-old boy who was sold into slavery, thrown into prison, only to be delivered by God's great miracles. And how many times did Moses consider his personal story was linked to Joseph? How God used Joseph to deliver all the Israelites, including Moses' ancestors, from a deadly famine. And how Joseph... Although living amidst Egyptian wealth and royalty, chose his people, the Israelites, in God's promised land as the place where he belonged. While Scripture doesn't explicitly answer all these questions for us, it is clear that Moses remembered Joseph's bones. Turn to Exodus 13, Exodus 13, verse 18 through 21. Over 300 years after Moses, Joseph's death, when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, we are told that the Egyptians fill the Israelites with spoils. They give them gold, silver, clothes, precious jewelry, all of which the Egyptians apparently realize isn't so important after experiencing ten horrifying plagues. 
But you know, amongst these spoils, the Israelites are also carrying a set of bones with them. Let's read about those bones and the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt, starting in verse 18. Exodus 13, verse 18. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took. Notice, who did this? Verse 19 says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Over 300 years after Joseph's death, it is Moses, another deliverer of the Israelites, who remembers the promise they made to Joseph, and he plays a crucial role in its fulfillment. Joseph's bones are not just any old, unimportant object, excess baggage to quickly unload. The Israelites end up carrying them with them 40 years as they wander through the wilderness. Now, can you imagine, what if you had to travel 40 years, the next 40 years on foot? Would you haul anything that you would consider unimportant? Wouldn't it be nice to unload an extra 20 pounds? Joseph's bones were significant. They are important. They're important enough for the Israelites to remember them in Egypt for over 300 years. They're important enough for the Israelites to haul them with them when they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're important enough to be preserved in God's word, including in Hebrews chapter 11, which is dedicated to God's most faithful servants. But why? What makes these bones worth preserving? Or for that matter, for you to listen to in a split sermon. Of course, we already know that Joseph's bones were a symbol of his faith and commitment to pursuing the promises of God over the things of this life the so-called riches of Egypt. But is that all they're a symbol of? Is there anything else we can learn from this one man's bones? Well, I suppose to answer that question, it's, it's part of the reason for that is um, we have to look at Joseph's life to review some of the things that Joseph experienced. You know, perhaps more important, though, even than just looking at the events of his life, is how Joseph viewed his own life and the struggles he encountered. You know, for all of us, life isn't merely a sequence of events. It includes emotions, thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, feelings, and inner struggles. For those who have been called by God, it also includes putting our experiences into a perspective framed by God's Word, under a lens magnifying, magnified by faith in our Creator. Similarly, for Joseph... His life wasn't merely a sequence of events recorded in the Bible. It included heart-wrenching emotions and extremely challenging spiritual battles. You see, you can read about people in the events of their lives, but sometimes what is most insightful is to get a glimpse of their innermost thoughts. What was Joseph's mindset regarding the things he lived through? How did Joseph view his life experiences? What, after all, was Joseph's perspective? To get a glimpse into Joseph's viewpoint, a good place to start is in the names of his two sons. You see, Joseph didn't just choose boys' names he liked the sound of. 
The names Joseph chose for his sons had a deep meaning for him. He named his firstborn son Manasseh, which means, I quote, For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. The other son Joseph named Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. If you stop and consider the significance of these two names, they provide a quick summary of Joseph's life and how he perceived it up to that point. Joseph's life was full of turmoil and affliction. I mean, can you imagine being betrayed by your very own family, sold to strangers, and carried to a foreign land at the age of 17? Well, that's what happened to Joseph. If that isn't enough, Joseph spent years as a slave in the house of Potiphar. It had to be difficult being forced into slavery, and yet Joseph perseveres. He works hard and is trustworthy. He remains obedient to God's commands. As you know, his master Potiphar notices Joseph's accomplishments. Everything Joseph works on prospers. He's fruitful. God blesses him. So Potiphar makes Joseph the overseer of all his house. Joseph has lost his family. He's lost his home. But now, after many years of hard work, he's finally earned a good job. He's won the confidence of his boss. God has been with Joseph despite Joseph's affliction. Unfortunately for Joseph, his turmoil comes in pairs, much like his two sons. Potiphar's wife also notices Joseph, but instead of seeking the prosperity of her household, she wants Joseph for her own desires. Joseph, of course, refuses her advances. He won't betray his master, nor will he break God's commands. So Potiphar's wife lies to her husband and falsely accuses Joseph of attempting to rape her. Joseph is immediately presumed guilty. He's thrown into prison for a crime he did not commit. At this point in his life, Joseph has not only lost his family and his home, he's lost all the hard work he's put into finally obtaining a good job. Even his reputation is, is smeared, is gone. The betrayals and injustice against Joseph is stacked up against him one after another. Affliction in Egypt is what Joseph has known. What he doesn't know yet is that he will suffer many more years of injustice before finally being released from prison. In Genesis chapter 41, we learn that it is not until Joseph is 30 years old that the Pharaoh finally calls him and interpret his dream. Please turn there, starting in Genesis chapter 41. We'll start in verse 39. Genesis 41, verse 39. Now, as you're turning there, imagine, after being betrayed by your family and spending 13 years in slavery in prison, would you think that God is with you? That God is there helping you? And yet, we know that God was. Similar how to Joseph was promoted being overseer of Potiphar's house, the keeper of the prison also recognizes Joseph's potential. He eventually placed Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. Joseph is a prisoner himself, and yet he's entrusted with great responsibility. As the name Ephraim suggests, God had indeed caused Joseph to be fruitful in the land of his affliction. You see, the fact is, God can bless you 
anytime, anywhere, even in the midst of a terrible trial. And you know what? Probably even more so after it. After all, Joseph's blessings don't stop there. Joseph is released from prison to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. After successfully explaining the dream, the Pharaoh makes Joseph the second most powerful man in Egypt. Let's read now Genesis 41, verse 39 through 41. Genesis 41, verse 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Dropping down now to verse 44. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's names um, Zophneth Paneah, and he gave him as a wife, Azeneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. In verse 46, Joseph was 36 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Joseph goes to work, leveraging seven years of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine. Ironically, this famine, a time that is typically one of great adversity, will eventually propel Joseph and make Joseph into Pharaoh great wealth. But this famine, um, but, but before this famine starts, Joseph starts a family of his own. Verse 50, And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, this is verse 51, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Skipping down now to verse 57. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all, the, all lands. Now, among those who are struggling from the famine are Joseph's brothers, who had sold him into slavery. Their father, Jacob, hears that there's plenty of food in Egypt, so he sends his sons there to buy grain. Continuing to read in Genesis 42, verse 1 through 3. Genesis 42, verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? What are you doing standing around? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. Notice Jacob's word. That we may live and not die. The children of Israel must be delivered from this famine to survive. In fact, later we'll see that this famine is really just getting started. It's only two years in. But for now, verse 3. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. It's ten brothers instead of eleven because their youngest brother, Benjamin, is not with them. Of course, you know this story. 
in Egypt, Joseph recognizes his ten brothers, but they don't recognize him. The memories of their betrayal come flooding back for Joseph. Joseph apparently struggles with how to handle their treachery and what to do now that the tables have turned. Should Joseph take vengeance on them and repay their evil for evil? Should Joseph act like they are no longer part of his family, forget them like the name Manasseh, and send them away? What should Joseph do? It's a difficult question, one filled with emotion for Joseph. Scripture reveals an inner turmoil going on inside him. He wrestles with right and wrong, good versus evil, vengeance versus forgiveness. In the midst of this great spiritual battle, Joseph takes a number of actions that are certainly questionable, and at least one that is definitely wrong. Turn ahead to Genesis 44, verse 1. Genesis 44, verse 1. Now, this passage captures an episode in Joseph's life where he frames his brothers with theft in order to bring false charges against them. Genesis 44, verse 1. And he, this is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. When they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up. Follow them in, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is this not the one, the cup, from which the Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Joseph invents a lie. This cup is not a uh, cup he practices divination in. And he frames his brothers with stealing this cup. What's going on with Joseph? Well, there's clearly something bigger going on here, big going on here. Joseph is struggling to find the answers to his past. Notice how Joseph tells his servant to ask his brothers, Why have you repaid evil for good? Why? Why, after Joseph had tried so hard to do good, had he suffered so unjustly? Why have you repaid evil for good? You know, in this question that they ask the brothers, it's not just from them he seeks an answer. It's ultimately from God which Joseph seeks the answer. Why does God allow people to be victimized? by jealousy, selfishness, and false accusations? Why does God allow evil to come upon those who strive for good? And then most importantly, what should Joseph do about it? How is he supposed to respond and and view these events in accordance with God's desire? The brothers plead with Joseph for Joseph's mercy. And all the brothers don't recognize Joseph. They recognize what they did to Joseph many years before was wrong, very wrong. In fact, when they first arrived in Egypt, they are faced with that guilt. 
Also, here in, 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 the, in this chapter 44, we learn that one of Joseph's brothers, Judah, eventually offers himself to be enslaved, much like they sold Joseph into slavery. It seems that Judah has had a huge change of heart. This time, instead of using his brother for personal gain, to acquire the riches of the world, Judah is willing to sacrifice his own life for his family's welfare. As Joseph hears this, he's overwhelmed with emotions. And then in Genesis 45, verse 1, it seems Joseph has this epiphany as the answers he's been seeking finally become clear. Let's pick up the story in Genesis 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from here. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Verse 4. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now... Do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Despite all the trouble and affliction Joseph has suffered due to his brother's sins, he comes to the realization that he can forgive their evil and repay it with good. In fact, his life in slavery and prison was incorporated into God's plan to deliver his brethren from death, to preserve their future. What good are all the riches in Egypt? What good is it to even inherit the land of promise if it can't be shared? You see, God not only cared about Joseph, he loved the entire family. He cares about all his children. And his purpose is to build a large, huge family, not willing that any should perish. The story of Joseph's bones is therefore not just about one man. And God being with him, it is a story of a family and the importance of families reconciling with one another to all journey to the promised land together. Now, thankfully, Joseph's brothers come to realize that what they did was wrong. Ten of them betrayed the one. It's ten against one. You don't need to turn there, but in Genesis 42, verse 21, Joseph overhears his brethren recognizing their guilt. They say, I'm quoting from Genesis 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, and Joseph is overhearing this, we are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, his distress has come upon us. After their father Jacob dies, the brothers realize that you know, they not only need to acknowledge their sin, they should also ask Joseph for his forgiveness. Turn to Genesis 50, verse 17. Genesis 50, verse 17, records events soon after Jacob's death. 
and there's plea for Joseph's mercy. Reading now Genesis 50, verse 17. Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph assures his family that there is no reason for them to fear. His calling and purpose was to save their lives, not to destroy. Joseph has forgiven them and treated them with mercy. But it isn't only because he loved their father, which it seems their brothers are thinking, their family's thinking, or the brethren's thinking. It's because he also loved them. Consider Joseph's last words to his brethren. At the end of Genesis 50, these are his dying words. Probably the most important words anyone could ever share. And those words are filled with love, encouragement, and a spirit of unity. Verses 24 through 25. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph's last wish is that he and all his brethren leave Egypt together, that they travel to the promised land as one united, reconciled family. Of course, you know the story of the Exodus, which occurs over 300 years later. You know how Moses, similar to Joseph, denies a life of riches and royalty in Egypt to deliver his brethren, the Israelites, from their affliction. We already discussed how Moses likely considered the promise of Joseph's bones as a source of inspiration and encouragement, and how he was personally committed to the promises made to his forefathers and by his forefathers. As we read previously, when it talks about Moses and the, the, the children going up out of Egypt out of order of the earrings, it says, And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. You know, after Moses dies at the edge of the promised land, the baton is then passed to Joshua and a subsequent generation of Israelites to enter the promised land. Please turn to Joshua 24. Joshua 24, verse 31 through 32. Now, once the Israelites are in the promised land and apparently settled in, they finally fulfill this promise to Joseph concerning his bones. Notice Joshua 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had known all the works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. The bones of Joseph with the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance for the children of Joseph. The land which Jacob had purchased became an inheritance for Joseph's children. In fact, we learn elsewhere that the firstborn birthright went to Joseph and his two sons, Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction, and Manasseh, 
For God has made me forget all my toil in all my father's house. Now from the story of Joseph's bones, there are of course many lessons to be learned. But before we close, I'd like to take a few more minutes and highlight just three main points. Now these three points we've mostly discussed, but still I think it'd be good to summarize them and, and leave a few additional thoughts. Now the first point we covered, point number one, is that this land is not your home. While you may live in Egypt, you are not from Egypt. You don't belong here. God has promised you an inheritance in his glorious kingdom, and that inheritance is where he wants you to place your focus. This is a key theme in the faith chapter of Hebrews, and it's a key message to learn from Joseph's bones. Joseph didn't belong in Egypt, and neither do you. The second point is point number two. Your journey is not alone. It includes a large family of spiritual brethren. God has called you out of Egypt to travel to the land of promise, but your journey is not just about you making it to the destination. God isn't just seeking to save your life. God wants all his children to arrive in the promised land together. While salvation is a personal journey, it is not just a personal journey. You, like Joseph, have a responsibility to help others set their goal on the promised land and to encourage them on their way. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. In Jesus Christ's famous Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, he outlines the model prayer. Now, you're all very familiar with this prayer and know its contents. But on the topic of Joseph, I want to highlight something you may have not considered before. You know, something very interesting about this model prayer is how frequently Jesus Christ uses derivatives of the Greek word hemin, which is translated as we are or us. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. The Greek word hemin is used at least nine times in several different forms in this very short prayer. You see, the model prayer is not just about you and God. It encompasses many people, us. Consider this in relation to Joseph's bones and your quest to the promised land. Point number two is, your journey is not alone. It includes a large family of spiritual brethren. Now, we're not done yet with the model prayer, so please hold your place there. But first, let me offer a third lesson to to take away with Joseph's bones. Point number three to learn from Joseph's bones is, the way to the promised land requires forgiveness and reconciliation. Point number three The way to the promised land requires forgiveness and reconciliation. Of course, the starting place for forgiveness and reconciliation is with each of us individually in our relationship with God. All mankind has sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Therefore, to inherit eternal life, each and every person must repent of their sins receive forgiveness through Jesus Christ's shed blood, and be reconciled to God, their Father in heaven. But there's an important lesson to take away with 
with Joseph's bones, forgiveness and reconciliation must not stop between just you and God, your relationship with God. Forgiveness and reconciliation must also extend to others. Notice again in the model prayer in Matthew 6, verse 12, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then immediately following the model prayer in verses 14 and 15, reading Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15 now, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. While each of us is accountable for ourselves, God's word reminds us it isn't just about ourselves. We also have a responsibility to others. There is a bigger spiritual family which God is preparing for his kingdom. And part of your duty involves extending mercy and forgiveness to them, just as Jesus Christ extended that to you. Consider for a moment. If Joseph had not extended his brothers mercy and forgiveness, reconciling their family, would they have carried his bones to the promised land? Now, please don't misunderstand me and think that this is somehow an excuse for wrong actions or in any way suggest that sins against brethren or people should not be dealt with. They should. Multiple scriptures make this clear. Deuteronomy 17, verse 12. Judges 5, 23. Obadiah 11, verse, or Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13. Galatians 2. We could go on. The list is long. But the point is still this. God's way seeks repentance and reconciliation, not condemnation. Repentance belongs to all who sin, and forgiveness belongs to all those who repent. God is building a family. Never forget the importance of your spiritual family in your exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. Point number three again is thus, the way to the promised land requires forgiveness and and reconciliation. In conclusion, please turn to one final passage in Psalms chapter 34. Psalms 34, verse 17 through 22. Now, while this psalm includes a prophecy about Jesus Christ, I submit it also provides a good summary of Joseph's life in the story of his bones. Psalm 34, we'll start in verse 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, But the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Joseph's bones stand as a symbol of faith, forgiveness, reconciliation, and the power of the great Almighty God to deliver his people from slavery and prison. I hope today that you found the lessons of Joseph's bones helpful. But even more importantly, I hope 
that you will take them with you as you journey through the wilderness of this life and onward to God's kingdom.